We are looking this morning at uh, Luke chapter 2. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn there with me, Luke chapter 2. This is our third Advent sermon. Our final one will be on the 26th. And this morning we are looking at that very well-known passage of scripture from Luke chapter 2. Um, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 20. And this is that portion of Scripture. If you grew up in a Christian church or if you grew up in a Christian school and there was a Christmas pageant, you heard some little girl playing Mary reading this portion of Scripture. I heard it recurrently growing up. Maybe it's because of our post-Christian culture. You don't hear it as much. But this might have been the most familiar portion of scripture to me, lengthier portion of scripture as a boy, because you did hear it every year in Christmas pageants. And, and yet, I hope that you're going to see new things this morning as we look at it, things that maybe you've never seen before. And so we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Here, Luke now writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people." For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in recent years, we have seen the birth announcement of some of the members of the British royal family. And whenever there is a birth announcement in the royal family, it is a universal event. It's covered on every news channel in just about every country on the face of the earth. And uh, now that we have 24-hour news, they talk about it incessantly. And um, 
and you start to wonder why do these people why do these people get to have such a big deal made about their baby when everybody else doesn't but if we looked in the history of the world and the history of mankind uh, there's always been this great uh, extravagant celebration over the birth of a child of a king or a queen and, and so it's interesting when we come to the Christmas narratives, when we come to the nativity narratives in the gospel records, one of the things that ought to strike us is that the record of the announcement of the birth of the King of Kings is entirely countercultural to what we see in our world. There is no pomp, there is no show, there is no extravagant announcement. There is no great gathering of the multitudes around him to see uh, the, the one who is the everlasting son born as the redeemer into the world. This is the son of David. This is the long-awaited son of David. And as we have been looking at that seed promise, and we have been considering how God fulfilled that promise first given to our first parents in the garden in Genesis 3.15 and then carried on through Abraham and, and we saw that last Lord's Day God was promising to fulfill his covenant with Abraham and then carrying that seed promise on to David and, and God establishing his kingdom God saying I am going to build an everlasting kingdom and he tells David your son is going to sit on the throne forever and you all know the prophecies in the Old Testament that that kingdom would stretch from shore to shore and from the river to the ends of the earth. That it would be as great as the entire world, that all the nations would come under the rule and reign of the king of kings. And here he is, and this is his birth, and all there are are shepherds. Um, there is nothing spectacular about this birth, and yet... Luke does something for us, and I want us to consider this this morning, and you've probably noticed it already. Luke puts these little hints of the greatness of the king, and he juxtaposes them against the condition in which he's born. Here is the long-awaited son of David, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is born to a poor virgin in a small town, and he can't even find a place to be laid in a proper dwelling place. He is born in abject poverty, in the greatest state of humiliation. I want us to consider this morning as we look at this birth announcement from these angels, especially to the shepherds, the time of Christ's birth. And then I want us to consider the setting of Christ's birth, and then the recipients of his birth. The time, the setting, and the recipients of this announcement of the birth of Christ. We'll notice that the first seven verses tell us what's happening at the time when the king of kings, the son of David, comes into the world. And you know this well, it's a season of worldwide taxation. Remember, the whole world is under the reign of Herod and under the reign of Caesar. And, and here we're told some of the key figures that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And you know that registration included a taxation. And so Joseph went up from Galilee to Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was from the house and lineage of David. Now, there are many things happening here. 
When we consider the timing of the birth of Christ, there are many things happening. The, the first thing is that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things in order to fulfill those long foretold prophecies. It is the registration that's going to carry Mary and Joseph and the soon-to-be-born baby Jesus from Nazareth into Bethlehem because, remember, God had decreed that the Christ would come out of Bethlehem. You know that prophecy so well from Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least among the, the towns of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who is going to shepherd my people, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. The Messiah had to come out of Bethlehem. We also know that the Jewish people knew that because when Herod asked and, and gathered all his wise men and said, where, where is the Christ to be born? They said Bethlehem. They knew exactly uh, what the Messianic prophecy had foretold. And so God is using the registration. What's very interesting is we oftentimes fear the decrees of powerful rulers. And here you have one of the most powerful rulers in the world decreeing a worldwide taxation, and yet where powerful rulers decree, God's decrees triumph. Isn't that interesting? That, that Caesar Augustus thinks he is in control when God is actually bringing about the fulfillment of what he had already decreed through the decree of Augustus. Isn't that fascinating? God is overruling and working all his plans out. Um, just as an aside, that means we can all calm down just a little bit when we watch the news. We can all just take it down a couple notches. We don't have to get so worked up. You don't have to yell at the TV. You know you do that. We just all calm down because the Lord is sovereign over everything. He's not just sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over everything. When we say we're Calvinist, when we say we're Reformed, whatever nomenclature we use, we are not just saying we believe he's sovereign over salvation. We believe he is sovereign over every molecule of the universe. R.C. Sproul used to say, if God is not sovereign, he said, over everything, he's sovereign over nothing. There are no maverick molecules. There are no maverick molecules. And so we take comfort while Caesar is decreeing, the Lord is working out his eternal decree. And there is also a spiritual lesson here about the timing of Christ's birth. You know, when we think about taxes, nobody likes taxes. Never, if, if anybody ever told me they like taxes, they're like, what is wrong with you? Um, the only people that like taxes are the people taking your taxes. And, and here's the point. God is going to bring his son into the world at a season when men are levying the heaviest tax they had known in that time. Because while men are taking and taking, God is giving and giving. Isn't that interesting? When men are taking, God is giving. That's an awesome truth that is nestled in the setting of the timing of the birth of Christ. Um, now, I've already noted that um, Joseph and Mary, Mary we know is poor because she can't even afford, um, she can't even afford 
to pay for the ordinary sacrifice to consecrate Christ when she comes to circumcise him. Um, he is born in a time where there wasn't great relief for those who are poor. He is having now to be uh, carried around by his mother. He's going to have to be delivered here in Bethlehem, and yet um, even the taxation on Mary and Joseph would have made this an extremely challenging and difficult and frustrating time for them. Um, There are no special provisions for them. Uh, Notice, as you know so well, in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Now, swaddling clothes are not like cute baby blankets like we think about them today. These were rags that they used to um, keep the baby's limbs together because they felt like the baby would grow in deformed ways if they didn't. And so he is tied up in these tightly. um, And uh, as they are looking for a place to lay him, Luke just simply tells him they laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, this may or may not have been what you, you thought about as a manger. It may not have been in a cave with animals um, as, as, our, as our, and I don't want to disappoint you if, if you love nativity scenes. I know, keep them, that's fine. It, it, it's probably more than likely this was some kind of uh, animal feeding trough, but it probably would have been in a lower part of a home, not out in a cave, and that the, the place in the inns, and most historians from that time are going to say that places in the inns were rooms in the upper levels of the houses, and that they were sequestered to the lower place. It's still a place of humiliation. It's still a place of, um, uh, of, of base humiliation, that the Son of God, the Eternal Son, would have to be laid in a manger. Now, Um, I want us to consider here, secondly, the setting of Christ's birth, and that is so much a part of it. Why why did the Son of God have to be laid in a manger? Now, you may never have thought about this. Um, The shepherds are going to come. They're going to do what the angels tell them to do. They're going to find Christ in the manger. That's going to be the sign. By the way, that's not much of a sign. Um... If, if someone said to you, the greatest person in the universe was just born, and you're going to find them over in this city in this shed, go find them. You, you would think they were crazy. Um, this is the most powerful being in the universe. He's laid in a manger. The shepherds are going to have to trust God and take him at his word when they go to see him. But more than that, and this is one of the most beautiful truths, and I don't want you to miss this this morning, Christ was laid in a manger so that you and I know he is the most approachable being in the universe. You see, if he had been born in a palace, if he had been born in David's palace in Israel, in the king's house, there's no way the shepherds would have thought they could go and approach him. Don't miss that. Um, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way we might tremble to approach a throne but we cannot fear to approach a manger isn't that beautiful we might tremble to approach a throne we cannot fear to approach a manger never could there be a being more approachable than Christ think about that you can go to him with all your sin he's the most approachable being in the universe The shepherds who are despised, we'll talk about that in a moment, 
The shepherds who are despised individuals do not hesitate to go to him and to come to find him and to pay homage to him. Um, Spurgeon goes on to say, Bow the knee, kiss the Son of God, accept him as your Savior, for he puts himself into that manger that you may approach him. The throne of Solomon might awe you, but the manger of the Son of David invites you to come. Isn't that beautiful? The manger of the Son of David invites you to come. Um, I want us to consider this also. John Calvin, as he reflects on the stable and the manger, the lodging, he says this. He says, When the Son of God was thrown into a stable and placed into a manger and a lodging refused him among men, it was that heaven might be open to us, not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance, and that angels might receive us into their abode. Isn't that awesome? When he was refused a place to stay, it was that he might open heaven for us. Now, how do we know this? Well, because the end of the gospel ends in almost the same way as the beginning of the gospel. He is wrapped in swaddling clothes as a baby and laid in a manger. He is nailed to a tree for your sin and my sin, and then he is wrapped in grave clothes at the end of his life in humiliation so that you know you can approach him. That's the kind of Savior we have. Think about that. From the beginning of his life to the end of his life, it is all humiliation so that you can go to him, so that you would not hesitate to go to him, that you would flee to him knowing that he has taken that place for you and for your sin and for your salvation. I mean, what, what, what better Savior could anyone ever imagine that he went that low so that you would know you could come to him? What an awesome, awesome God we have that he would do that for us and for our salvation. Well, I want us to consider the recipients. Now, we know that Christ deserved to have all the nations come to him as an infant. He should have had every knee on earth bowing to him when he came into this world. He gives everyone in this world life and breath and all things. He holds our breath in his hand. He owns all our ways. He is behind us. He is before us. His hand is upon us. In him we live and move and have our being. Um, he is the creator of all things. All things were made through him. He deserves to have every knee bow before him. But instead... He has a group of despised shepherds. Now, why shepherds? Well, they are in the city of David, and um, David was a shepherd, so it would make sense that God would reveal to shepherds the announcement of the birth of the son of David in the city of David as he is fulfilling his covenant with David. Isn't that interesting? It's also fitting that it's shepherds because Christ came into this world to be the good shepherd. That promise in Micah 5 about him being born in Bethlehem says that, that he would come forth out of Bethlehem to shepherd my people, God says, to shepherd my people. And so it's fitting that God would reveal to shepherds 
um, the announcement of the birth of the Savior. And yet I think it's also fitting that it's shepherds because shepherds were so despised. And, and what that shows us is that salvation is for everyone who will come to Christ. That, that Christ is not offered to the rich and the noble and the powerful and the intelligent and the respected and the revered first. He's offered to the despised. You know, that's good news for us because most of us are not rich or noble or powerful or intelligent or respected. And so that's good news that he is a savior for such a people as you and me. Um, We can come to him because he was in the manger. Look at all the encouragement God's giving us. You can come to him because the shepherds could come to him. You know, I also think and wonder, and this is just sort of me speculating, but I wonder if it wasn't shepherds, because those shepherds would have been raising some of the lambs that would have been offered up in sacrifice that were typical of what Christ would be as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some of them were no doubt being raised by those shepherds, and God is even intimating in a subtle way, why Christ has come into the world. He's come to be the lamb who was slain. He's come to take away the sin of the world. Well, whatever the case, I want us to consider the announcement just briefly to these recipients. Now, whenever, whenever there is a birth announcement, and most of them happen now online on social media, somebody says to such and such was born on this day, this child who weighed this much. And everybody gets excited that so-and-so had this baby, and we can all see the baby, can't wait to see the baby. But the announcement of the birth of Christ is different than the announcement of the birth of any other child in the history of humanity. And I want you to look at this as the shepherds are out in the field and the angel of the Lord appeared around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. The angel said to them, fear not. For I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, notice there is a universality to the announcement of the birth of Christ. Fear not, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. This is a worldwide birth announcement. This baby, born this day, in this place, in this town, is born to bring good news that will produce great joy in all mankind on the face of the earth. Now that means, that means that the announcement of the birth of Jesus is also inextricably linked to what he is going to do at the end of his life on the cross. Because the good news that the angel is predicting here is the news that he has come to save his people from their sins. The good news that brings great joy in the hearts of God's people is the news that Christ has atoned for our sins, that he has forgiven our sins, that he has paid the penalty for our sins. You know, I sometimes think, if we are joyless, if I am joyless, 
it's because I have not adequately come to understand the good news. Because the good news is to produce great joy for all people. And that's what you need, and that's what I need. You know, I've never met a person in my 15 or so years of pastoral ministry, I've never had someone come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I just, I don't need any more joy. I, I am the most joyful person I know. And I've never, I've, I've, I have had people come to me and say, I'm, I'm not a very joyful person. Um, well, this is where joy is found. This is where peace is found. Um, elsewhere, we know that they, they say to those shepherds that, um, that the birth of Christ is going to produce peace, and that peace is the peace of reconciliation with God. When we know that we've been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, when we know that Christ has brought us back to God by his death and his resurrection, and we know that we have peace with God, that peace with God produces joy. That joy wells up because we know that God has done what was necessary to bring about that reconciliation to produce that peace in Christ. And so when I look at my life, and you are called to look at your life, and if you say, I, I am struggling, I am not a very joyful person, there is a very simple solution. We need to meditate on the good news of the gospel. We need to meditate on it more. We need to believe it. We need to rest in it. And we need to praise God for it. You know, the, the shepherds are going to respond. Notice verse 20. How do they respond to all this? After they come and they see, notice they return. They are glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Every Sunday, y'all, we hear and see this. Now, we need the Holy Spirit to make us see it with the eyes of faith, but it is meant to produce joy, deep, lasting, real joy in our souls. Um. You know, I know that the further on you go in your Christian life, the more you can struggle, struggle with sort of a dullness and a complacency. Don't let these truths get dull. They should never get dull to you. Um, notice the angels give... They give the shepherds a sign. Notice verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. As I've noted already, not much of a sign, is it? This is going to be the one that brings great joy for all the world. This is the son of David. This is the long-awaited Messiah. And you're going to find him wrapped up in shabby clothes in a manger. And yet, I want to point out the faith of the shepherds. Notice verse 15, and let us learn from them this morning. The shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You know, every time we hear the gospel preached, the Lord is making the gospel known to you. Every time we hear the truth about Christ, God is giving us the same announcement that the shepherds received from an angel. Uh, you know, we may be one of those types that say, well, if I, just, if I just had more of a supernatural indicator, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Um, John Murray, the old Scottish professor at Westminster Seminary, used to say, if, if, if um, someone told you today, if you go to such and such a field at such and such an hour, 
and you stand in that field, God will speak audibly to you. Now, most of us would be like, yeah, I ain't going, because we know better. But, but if you didn't know better, most people would flock to that field, but every time God's word is read and preached, God is speaking audibly. Every time his word is read and preached. And the response that he wants from you and from me is the response of the shepherds. Let's go and see what has been revealed to us by the Lord. You see, we could, we could leave this place today. We could say, okay, that was nice. I learned some things. We could go on with our day, and we could never go to the Lord Jesus. But the point of this birth announcement, the point of the details, the time, the setting— all the things that the, the, the recipients, everything God orchestrated is so that you and I would go in faith, experientially seeking the Savior who was born to be the King of Kings and the Son of David. That is the only response God wants from us. I want to encourage you this morning, if you are in a place where you have not been seeking the Lord, where you've not been calling on him, where you've not been uh, eager to meditate on the good news and to see it affect your life, today is the day. Don't, don't let today go by. Um, our salvation is nearer than when we first began. Today is the day to seek the Lord. Um, if you feel like you've just sinned too much, your sin is too much. You can't go to him. He was born in a manger and he was laid in a grave so that you would go to him. He shed his blood for sinners. He did not shed his blood for the righteous. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus did not come to save people that think they don't need to be saved. And so no matter where you are, you can go to him. Spurgeon somewhere else says, you can get in that manger with him. You can put yourself in there. You can sit at the foot of the cross. You can go boldly to the throne of grace. Um, I was reading Thomas Watson this week, and he said, Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. That's a humbling thought. He went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. We have access not to go to the manger, but to go all the way into the very throne room of heaven where Christ is even now sitting at the right hand of God. The writer of Hebrews says he has passed through the heavens as the forerunner. He has opened it for you so that in prayer we can go right to the very throne of God on which Christ sits as the son of David. And so I want to challenge you as you consider where you're at this morning, that you would flee to him, that you would go boldly, that you would go knowing that there is not a being on earth more approachable than the son of David. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do need to be drawn to your son, even as you drew those shepherds. We thank you and praise you for the way in which you arranged every aspect about the coming of your son into the world. We thank you, Lord, for the, the timing of it and how you superintended all of the circumstances. We thank you for the, the abject poverty and the great humility and humiliation um, into which the son was born. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly humbled yourself, that you, who are the eternal God, who have eternal glory with your Father and the Spirit, who is the infinite God, the one who has all power and majesty, all might and dominion, that you would be born to a poor virgin and laid in a manger so that we might come to you. Would you make us to see and feel our need for you this morning? We pray that you would draw us with cords of love, that you would make us to know that we, we can come, that we can pour out our hearts in confession and brokenness, and that we can embrace you in faith, that we can leave as the shepherds did, glorifying God and rejoicing. And so, Lord, would you do that in our souls? Would you increase our joy as we hear that good news for all the people? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.